0: Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. Really great show today. We have Narbe of Canopy Rivers, which is the VC arm of Canopy Growth. Uh, It's a big interview. You're really gonna like it a lot. We get in deep into their portfolio, their thesis over the next five years, how they evaluate companies. They look at three to 500 deals a quarter, how he deals with that process. We get into his background, how he found it here today. Fascinating interview. You're gonna love it. Hey guys, I want to take just one quick second to tell you about our very first sponsor on investing in cannabis. We held off on having a sponsor for a long time because we only want to be authentic to you, the audience, and add value to those that listen to this show every week. But when Marshall and Tanner of Heffernan Insurance reached out to us, we knew it was the right fit. They're coming at the cannabis industry the exact right way, trying to learn, joining all the associations. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to provide you with just snippets of little education about how to protect your your cultivation or protect your manufacturing company protect your brand even if you already have an insurance company you're gonna want to listen to these and you're gonna want to have a conversation with them we've set up a new email for you to talk directly with marshall and tanner it's ic at that's ic at you won't regret it guys they're just here to help the first conversation is totally free like i said even if you have insurance you'll stand to learn a lot Thanks so much guys for sponsoring this great show and allowing independent media to thrive. Well Narve, this is really exciting. Thanks so much for being on the program and welcome.
1: Thank you for having me. Really excited.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think most people listening will know what Canopy Growth is, but let's just get started with what's Canopy Rivers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, Canopy Rivers is a venture capital affiliate of Canopy Growth, uh, which, as you know, is the largest cannabis producer worldwide. Uh, Canopy Rivers was started in April 2017. At the time, uh, Bruce and Canopy Growth were looking to do acquisitions within the space. Uh, The company looked really different from what it does right now. Uh, Canopy Growth had about a $200 million market cap, $20 million balance sheet, going across Canada to look at what type of acquisitions the company wanted to make. So very different from what it is right now in the billions of dollars that we talked about, but at the time, it was still big money. Uh, Some of the operators that Bruce was approaching uh, were were open for acquisition. Others weren't. They wanted to ride the wave of cannabis. Uh, As you can imagine, Brandon, this has been a dream for a lot of folks within the industry waiting for legalization to take place. So for, for a lot of people, a lot of operators, they wanted to do it their own way, using their own strategy. So Bruce, uh, being the visionary that he is, thought uh, why not own the gas station on both sides of the street? Why not build a company based off of the strategy that he and the rest of Canada Growth were thinking of uh, going through while at the same time investing in very strong operators tackling the, the cannabis industry in different ways? Uh, if you take a step back, this industry is gonna be so big that there's not really much competition in the space, in the sense that everyone's working with Greenfield out there and everyone can win. Uh, so, so long as uh, everyone works together. So at that point in time, Canopy Rivers was born. Uh, fast forward to now, we have 14 portfolio companies. They're across a wide area of the value chain. So they include a diversified portfolio of licensed producers, cultivation sale applicants, pharmaceutical formulators, <clears throat> excuse me, branded developers, distribution, technology, media, beverage, all across the entire value chain. Uh, our, our investments are customized for each of the counterparties, so it includes a balanced mix of equity, debt, royalty, profit sharing agreements, and and because of the domain expertise we bring to the picture, uh, we, our typical check size is anywhere between half a million dollars and forty million dollars, making us lifecycle investors with the ability to both lead and follow on with early stage and late stage companies. The company, yeah, So
0: that's a pretty big range. How do you uh, sort of think about that? You said 500K to 40 million. Um, dive into that a bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it depends on what piece of the value chain you're attacking. If you go uh, down the path of going talking to a uh, technology company, well, technology companies can typically scale very easily with, with a small amount of capital. So you're, you're at the lower end of the range. When you're talking to a cultivation play, both domestically and internationally, these are greenhouses and facilities that are going to be, uh, that never need tens of millions of dollars of capital expenditures in order to turn on the lights on first day. So for, for those types of transactions, we're looking at a larger check set.
0: Got it. And yeah, that kind of leads me into the thesis a little bit more. How much do you think about touching the plant? Obviously, that's where Canopy started versus sort of ancillary and technology stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We, we look at the entire value chain at all times. Uh, what we've done internally is break down the value chain into 13 different pieces uh, from cultivation to plant science to agri- agricultural technology, post harvest processing, extraction, all the way to brands and consumer rights, consumer products, and, uh, and then retail distribution. And for each of those sub segments, we drill down into um, 97 uh, deeper subsegments. Uh, and, and this was in an effort to find out where the puck is headed versus what everyone else is doing. So we applied 10 criteria, uh, 10 criteria to each of these 97 subsegments to understand where we want to spend our time, where we want to spend our resources, where should we ramp up our teams in order to, to get the best deal flow. Because I personally believe that the best deal flow is the ones, the companies that you contact versus the ones that contact you. Uh, and, and, and developing uh, that thesis around um, where do we think that the cannabis industry is headed, based off of all of our discussions that we've had with other like producers, canopy growth, uh, as well as any of the stars that we've seen in the space as well.
0: And kind of where does final decisions come down? I mean, how much is the parent company involved in in what gets deployed?
1: Yeah. So canopy growth is uh, an investor. They own just under thirty percent of the company, and they control the company for multiple. Uh, voting shares. However, they're not uh, part of our day-to-day operations and day-to-day decision making. We have an independent board which makes a lot of the decisions in order to make sure there's no conflict of interest and we're always looking out for our other uh, shareholders uh, as well. Uh, So they're they're not involved in any of the decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis, including the investments that we make. However, we're always uh, talking to them about what's coming down the pipeline because you always want to know what the largest cannabis producer is uh, doing and how they're thinking of that certain sub-segment that you're just about to put an investment into.
0: And how much do you think about, ultimately, what they might want to acquire?
1: Uh, we do think of that. I mean, for every one of our portfolio companies, we we split it up into three different buckets. Uh, companies that are going to be cash flow positive and great operating entities. Other companies that are going to be fantastic candidates for GoPublic. And there's companies out there that uh, are just super well-versed towards an M&A because, There's some traditional company uh, out there that's doing something they're doing in the non-cannabis space. That would be a a fantastic partner for them. But because of the legality issues in the U.S., uh, we just have to hold and wait for that to take place. So we're we're always looking at that. For the acquisition piece, um, I I mean, it's it's much easier for for cannabis growth to do it. Basically, they know what's going on inside the company. Uh, Bruce Linton is our co-CEO as well. However, uh, as I mentioned, we do have an independent board, which does make the uh, make decisions on behalf of all of the shareholders uh, and making sure that it's a fair process uh, and, and that nothing funky is taking place.
0: Got it. So I just want to run through the portfolio. Maybe we could do a little rapid fire round and just tell me kind of what was compelling about that opportunity. Um, let's start with Headset, a company that's been on this show. Size has been on this show before uh, being dubbed the Nielsen of cannabis today. But what was it about Headset that was compelling?
1: Yeah, so for, for Headset, we were actually chasing Sai and the company down for a few months, uh, candidly. Uh, I really liked their background. They were ex-Leafly uh, founders, all three of them, uh, finished up their their time at, uh, at Leafly, and, and they came over to the space to try to fix it. The thesis behind Headset was driven uh, based off of a conversation that we had at MJBiz uh, early on. We were talking to uh, what is now one of the largest uh, beverage producers in the cannabis space, based out of the U.S., and uh, they, they had just released a brand-new uh, blueberry cola. And um, I, I have a lot of friends in the, uh, in the CPG space, uh, and we have a lot of contacts. We all consistently talk to beverage companies and snack companies. So I was curious for, for why they came up with this blueberry cola concoction. So asking them uh, at the exhibit, their answer was simply, we have a fantastic uh, flavor house in Kentucky that provided us with this blueberry flavor, so we tossed in with the cola flavor. And there you go. We have blueberry colon and, and it's selling off the shelves. So when you take a step back; that, that's completely opposite to what the market is telling you. So what traditional CPG companies are are, are focused in on uh, building the business of uh, taking two years to do R&D, two years to understand the, the the customer and the trends and what's out there in the market and how to label this and what it looks like. And in the cannabis industry, you have the complete opposite. You have the, let's build it and they will come. Uh, And and the way we looked at that was that it could really play out in two ways. One could be that um, a lot of these companies that are currently out there making tremendous amounts of revenue within the gray market, they're capitalizing on the the growth of the industry. So if the industry is growing by 40% and they're growing by 40%, that's perfect. Um, But in the long term, we, we thought that there was a lack of data and there needed to be data within the space to give a more informed uh, position for these brand managers in order to develop products. So they weren't blindly developing products that the customers would want to buy, but instead they could rely on data and use that data to, to create informed decisions of how to change their, their marketing mix and uh, their product in order to entice users to, to buy more of it. Uh, so once we had that thought, uh, thought process, we went and we scoured the entire market for who held the best form of data. Uh, and lo and behold, Headset just kept creeping back at us over and over again. Um, and uh, and, and what, what that built is the first and only real-time uh, retail intelligence platform where you pull information from 20 different TOS systems, I think more than 20 now, uh, and, and create an informed decision of what market share is for each of the brands, what SKUs are selling better, what blood tenders are doing better than the other ones are. What is the, the the precise mix of price and volume that that uh, a dispensary or a brand a brand should look for, and all these different data points that uh, create what we what we we think is going to be cannabis
0: 2.0. Awesome. Uh, so you brought up beverages. Uh, next one on my list is greenhouse juices. Um, tell me a little bit about that one.
1: Yeah. So we closed greenhouse juice in late January and. Uh, This was uh, about another six months in the making. Uh, We we had the belief that instead of going after a brand new beverage manufacturer that didn't really know, didn't really have the experience of building beverages, why don't we find the best one that we can locally and uh, teach them about cannabis and and convince them to to add cannabis to their product. So Greenhouse Juice is a local uh, Toronto-based cold-pressed juice manufacturer, the largest cold-pressed juice manufacturer in Canada. And within four years, they went from founding to becoming the largest. Uh, they they had invested a, a lot of money into a state of the art manufacturing facility based in uh, Mississauga that uh, that that has one of the only, actually the only uh, production facility of its kind in North America. So they had uh, taken. Uh, this technology from Europe and brought it over and got exclusive in North America to develop juices. What really sets them apart, and this is what we were really enticed about, was they can switch lines really quickly, so they can switch products pretty quickly and develop different products. They have this facility which was very underutilized because they had just moved into it, and they're applying this brand new technology that was moving the shelf life of, of uh, these cold fresh juices from what is four weeks to about eight months without... Uh, compromising any of the nutritional value of of the content of the juice as well. That, to us, was a big enough game changer just in the juice space because instead of going to the store and paying 14 bucks for a juice, uh, the the fact that you could reduce the spoilage would mean that the cost of the juice could go down to, call it $4 in in no time, which creates an enormous amount of scale for the company. That, on top of the fact that they already had an R&D license in Canada to test the concoctions of how cannabis played within their juices just meant that they were far ahead of the curve from a lot of the the other parties that we had seen. Uh, And together, we we, we developed a deal where uh, we would put money in through uh, convertible debt. Um, And we're really happy with that investment and how it's been playing out ever since.
0: And how is the transition or or the addition of cannabis products going?
1: Uh, Really good. I mean, they've been working on it for, for quite some time. When we were testing in the due diligence process, uh, and this is, a, this is the type of thing I always want to see from entrepreneurs is they, they would give us that type of a look like, you know, we've been looking at this for months now. Uh, you think you can stump us in a half hour to an hour of a diligence meeting on, on formulations? Uh, we have uh, multiple people working full time on, on developing these things. And we've we've seen the water solubility issues. We've seen the availability issues. And we're getting past all that. And we, we think we've got this uh, really tremendous uh, R and D team that is focused on building cannabis products.
0: And are we talking about nano emulsion, or is there something proprietary there? Or you said you've you've sort of figured that part out?
1: It, it, it is proprietary, uh, and, and the company does not want to disclose it at this time. But uh, but they've created their own thing, uh, as well as they can get the lean in from cannabis growth and all the cool things that they're building as well, um, and uh, and just become a super product.
0: Is that legal to sell cannabis beverages in Canada yet? Is that not yet? Not yet. Not
1: yet. Uh, However, everyone's ramping up, so uh, the expectation is that it'll become legal in October of 2019. To get on the shelf in October of 2019, you basically have to be ready to ship and and ready to go by the summertime, so everyone's in a mad rush to to get to that point.
0: The next one may surprise listeners a little bit. Canapar out of Sicily, Italy. Um, What what was compelling about that? Maybe a, a little different from what you're doing in the rest of the portfolio.
1: Yeah, so for Canapar, uh, we, we are always looking at international plays. We're looking at strong entrepreneurs internationally that can actually help us expand into those spaces. Canapar's uh, two founders were um, uh, cosmeceutical manufacturers, so they, they were creating cosmetics uh, for sale in pharmacies all across Europe, uh, and they were approaching the hemp industry just the same way. They thought CBD was going to be huge, is going to be huge, uh, and uh, they wanted to add CBD to their product. However, there's no, there's no hemp produced, really, in Europe at the time. So we made an investment last year, middle of last year. Uh, we put in a small $750,000 check uh, at a seed round to give them the, the, the ammunition they needed to prove the concept out. And uh, they, they were proving it out um, very well. Uh, they, they found a facility in Sicily. They had connections to the government to get a CBD, a hemp license, um, and they had product formulations they had in mind already to, to add CBD to their products. So we were really happy with their progress. Uh, they raised a, a large uh, $23 million round recently, which we played $17 million of. Um, and we're really excited with, with how Cannapars is progressing uh, and ha- how it's taking over. A little known fact for, for um, I don't know if many of your uh, your listeners know this, but uh, Italy is the um, highest per capita consumption of uh, smoked product and Right now, what's, what's really, really popular there are hemp cigarettes. Mm. Uh, and they're called Cannabis Light. Um, I don't know why they call it that, but uh, it's, it's going off the shelf. And it's, uh, it's actually scaring a lot of tobacco companies in the region as well because you're getting that substitute effect without uh, the addiction of properties of nicotine.
0: And they have a really low percentage of THC or CBD, or what's the makeup of, of those hemp cigarettes?
1: Yes. Yeah. But by lot, similar to what you have in the US with the CBD. You have to have, I think it's less than 0.2% THC within your product, so uh, virtually THC free.
0: Got it. Uh, next one on my list is AgriFarm, which is really a conglomerate of uh, three other brands. Um, and I guess it brings up the question of how do you look at investing in sort of these groups versus individual brands or companies?
1: Yeah, so so AgriFarm is a combination of canopy Growth. Uh, Greenhouse Seeds, which is the largest uh, seed producer worldwide, and open vape or organic or Brands, um, that, uh, that they're the largest uh, vape manufacturer in Colorado. Uh, what we really like with AgriFarm is you're taking these three giant companies that have created massive amounts of market share and putting them together to create a brand within Canada. To your question of, of, uh, of finding single companies versus uh, combining uh, three thought leaders uh, in developing one, it can go either way. Well, what we thought we really liked at AgriFarm was that we are bringing in resources from both the Netherlands and uh, and the U.S. and developing products for Canada with the largest cannabis producer, uh, and, and it was a pretty easy sell in terms of uh, the, the the deal uh, to actually get this to that next level. We, we thought that um, using the three, we would have access to IP, we would have access to product that, that uh,
0: no other competitor could really compete with. Got it, yeah. Open Vape is one of the originals, uh, particularly here in California. I think a lot of people know this synonymous with some of their first experiences with cannabis. Um, uh, I want to go back into the beverage discussion a little bit here uh, with the Herbert investment. Um, There's a huge, this massive thesis that a lot of people have that much of cannabis is going to be uh, drinking instead of smoked in the future. But I guess the question that I have is, do you expect that to be new consumers or do you expect a lot of current smokers, pre-roll consumers to convert to some degree or another?
1: We're actually seeing a lot of that conversion take place so when we're looking at what's happening in the markets of, uh, of Colorado and Oregon and uh, in California, you're seeing a move away from uh, the, um, the the dry flower onto beverages and a CPG type products. So uh, with with that data point in mind, you start thinking about the edibles and the beverage space. What really entitles me about beverages is that up to this point, uh, especially with THC, so Herbert is a THC infused beverage line that that they're launching with the same principles as uh, some of the same principles as greenhouse juice. Um, And and, uh, if you take a look at how we consume alcohol at this point, we drink a beer, we have a a, a glass of vodka soda uh, in order to, to get us to a certain mental state. That same consumption, uh, path uh, is going to make the end user of a, a beverage much more comfortable versus something like an edible or a baked pen. So um, we think the beverage space is going to really help bring pull through those users that either reject the cannabis for a long, long period of time or are starting to warm up to it uh, as, a, as a gateway into the, all the other products that are out there within the cannabis space.
0: Right now in California, there's a number of beverages on the market and there's a pretty wide range of dosing um, and also sort of sodas versus sparkling waters. Do you have sort of a thesis for how that's going to play out? Is it going to be low dose? Is it going to be sort of LaCroix-like or what are your thoughts there?
1: I'm a huge, huge fan of microdosing. I think the, the current edibles market right now has turned off a lot of people. And when I say that the current edibles market, I also mean um, homemade edibles. Uh, for, for a long period of time, even right now, you, you go into a dispensary, you pick up a brownie, uh, not no real instructions on it. If uh, someone eats a, a quarter of it, they feel fine. An hour later, they still feel fine, so they just eat the whole thing. Two hours later, they're just in a catatonic state, and uh, it, it's just it's just bad news. Um, in compare, I, I'm a huge fan of microdosing, and I think microdosing is going to really come into play as you kind of move users into lifestylers, into... Um, potential cannabis users. Uh, So so I think the the best beverages out there will be ones that um, have that uh, bioavailability that you get that spike. So you have uh, the the feeling, the the psychedelic feeling of THC really quickly, but you can get off that pretty quickly as well. So now we're looking at emulsion technologies, Uh, And then secondly, I I think that it's going to be very low dose. So I know in Canada, the the regulations are going toward uh, 10 um, milligrams of THC in every single drink. Um, and then I think that there's going to be probably that or less, uh, uh, as more drinks get produced so that you do need to have two or three in order to feel a very strong high, uh, but you're likely not going to drink three of the same, uh, drink back to back to back.
0: Yeah. My experience with the beverages at the very low doses, you know, sub 10 milligrams is that the testing becomes a great challenge. Is that something that you guys have run into?
1: Testing in terms of what?
0: In terms of uh, making sure that there is the uh, right amount of THC in the beverage, um, which can be tough at five or even three milligrams.
1: Absolutely. This is where the help from Canopy Growth really comes in. Um, For for a lot of the the beverages and the edibles, uh, the the molecules of THC and CBD are very sticky. So uh, when you're making a brownie or or a chocolate bar and, and you don't have the advanced capabilities of production, every piece might have a different dosage of THC, uh, which means that you might have one not feel much, you might have another one feel a lot. Uh, and then the beverage space is the same thing and this is where formulation and delivery really comes into play and this is where a lot of the companies that we're looking at within the space trying to understand how they're approaching this aspect, how they can uh, create a product where you have a stability of you know exactly how much THC is going to be in it the, the variance or the standard deviation of that THC uh, doesn't it isn't as volatile as some of the, the products in market right now, and that's when you you actually start moving into mass market and creating a brand where um, you're having a Budweiser, you know exactly what you're gonna get. You're gonna have a a Big Mac, you know exactly what you're gonna get, and you're gonna have a cannabis drink, you know exactly what you're gonna get.
0: Yeah, certainly. The brand uh, and that expectation is so, so important. Um, I want to dive a little bit back into the thesis here um, and just talk about the future a bit, I guess. Are there sort of segments that you're really excited about now, places that you haven't made a bet yet, I guess, without giving away any of the, the secret sauce there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, well, why don't I start off with our vision of where the market's going to go. Um, so before I jump into it, there's kind of four rules that we always look at whenever we're looking at the space and talking about the future of the space. One is that you have to really believe that the stigma is short term. Uh, you have to believe that the end of cannabis prohibition is inevitable across multiple geographies, that uh, every industrial country out there is going to, in some shape, way, or form, legalize cannabis, either strictly through medicinal or... Uh open up to adult piece as well. Secondly, you have to really believe that brands will be the future of the cannabis industry. You talk to the tobacco and spirit and beverage and beer companies. They don't own any tobacco farms or hop farms or barley farms. Uh, they're brand creators. So some brands will determine the future. Number three, there is a shortage of data. As more data gets developed, there's going to be competitive advantages that take place across different brands. And then number four is that uh, you also have to believe that US federal legalization will take place. Uh, in the medium term, not in the short term, but as that takes place, there's going to be a large amount of institutional investors and larger players that come into the space, which will increase competition and probably increase valuation for the private markets as well. So,
0: yeah. I was going to say, do you have a prediction for when U.S. will come online?
1: I think the the closest prediction that I'll actually believe will be in two to three years, and the longest one would be between five to ten so if we're to average that out, I'd say between two to five years.
0: Yeah. Part of me thinks Trump may make it uh, sort of an issue to try to drag some liberals along with him, but I guess we'll find out in uh, 18 months or so. Um, cool. We, I started to cut you off. Did you have more to go on, yeah. on that sort of side? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So so we see the industry moving in five different distinct ways, the first wave would be cultivation. Uh, here you have companies that are trying to create the products. Uh, we call, everyone calls it the green rush—an uh, intense focus on large-scale cannabis production. Uh, in the short term, there's a lot of money to be made because cultivation licenses are valuable in highly competitive processes, where there's a scarcity of a number of licenses that are given. So, if you're a first mover, you can make a ton of money doing it, and you can get a uh, competitive advantage doing that first. However, as the market starts to mature, more players get into the game, and the cost per pound or a kilogram of, of cannabis be, uh, continues to drop, like we're seeing uh, in Colorado. The second wave would be the ancillary market, and this is where the industry uh, picks and shovels. Uh, and we think the ancillary industry is going to be about three times the size of the core cannabis cultivation industry. Ancillary companies are providers of products or services that uh, uh, help bring cannabis to life uh, and then help the broader cannabis economy. There's less risk, there's less rules and regulations to abide by, and there's a ton of them out there. So, for example, in Canada, there's about 130 cultivation licenses, 40 public cultivation companies. Our estimates show there's about 4,000 ancillary businesses in North America, and 99% of them are privately owned, which as a venture capital uh, fund like ourselves, uh, that's a really enticing statistic to look at because there's just so many companies to talk to. The third way would be branding and CPG. Uh, as companies start building out cannabis brands, they're effectively b- building cannabis as brand as well. Uh, customers and, and users right now don't really have any mind share uh, in terms of what they think is the top brand. Uh, we were uh, within the office uh, and with a, a few friends of the company. We visited some of the dispensaries in Vegas uh, during MJBiz last November. And just walking through there and living and breathing the industry like we do, there's still some brands that we have never heard of that, that, that got shelf space. And it got us thinking that, uh, that, that there is no clear winner within this space yet from the brand perspective. Uh, and, and it is still greenfield for many of the companies out there. What could be the next Coca-Cola or Pepsi within the, the cannabis industry might not have even been founded yet. So there's still a huge amount of opportunity out there. Uh, wave four, what we see as being big pharma, we think the med- medical market is the largest market, but there hasn't been enough proper research done on cannabis to correctly size this market and correctly find out what what what, what uh, use cases will be the most uh, valuable. Uh, news is always talking about GW Pharmaceuticals is doing, but uh, this, that's just the, the tip of the iceberg on the medical side of things. Uh, we're, we're seeing so much anecdotal evidence that's showing the, the lucrative opportunities for cannabis. However, until these academic studies are created, are peer-reviewed, uh, they're tested through clinical trials, you're really not going to see big pharma approach. Um, one of the, the stats we always push out is the, that the top uh, seven out of the ten uh, patent holders of, of cannabis uh, within Canada are a multinational pharmaceutical companies. So. Uh, they're, they're lurking in the shadows, uh, picking up patents because they know how big this is going to be and how it's going to impact their, their opioid uh, sales as well. And then lastly, uh, weight five is our, uh, what we call maturity. Uh, as cannabis approaches that stage of maturity, there's only going to be a small number of market leaders that are making the rules and running the business. Uh, this is where, when you take a step back and you look at the space, you see how much potential there is in cannabis if you were to take the market cap of the top three players of beer and alcohol, pharma, tobacco, CPG, food and beverage, and you take the top three players, smash the market caps together, you're looking at a value anywhere from $230 billion to $600 billion of a combined market cap for just those three companies. If you take the same thing of cannabis, you're getting to a $40 billion uh, combination of the top three players. So there, there's a, there's arguably a whole decimal space that this cannabis industry can go through, uh, which really excites me because we're just so early in the game, both in Canada and the U S
0: yeah, no, that's fascinating. Thank you so much for the detailed thesis there. Well, Narbe, I think you have about the coolest job that I could think of given, given what I do, but I just wonder, you know, how you got here, tell us a little bit about your background and like what, what brought you to this point?
1: Yeah. So I I've spent the last 10 years, uh, In the tech industry prior to that, I was a a trained accountant. I'm a CPA. Uh, Didn't really like accounting, so uh, fell in love with tech, really followed that. My background was predominantly in Internet of Things, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. Uh, Spent the last 10 years working for startups, working with startups at um, one of the largest incubators in Canada uh, with a a telecom company looking at buying startups. Uh, And I spent the last four years prior to joining Canopy Rivers. In Canada's largest tech VC fund, Omer's Ventures, where uh, we grew the the fund from 170 million dollars to about just under a billion, with a market value of three to four billion dollars. So tremendous success. Uh, one of our star portfolio companies uh, was Shopify, uh, which which we helped take public, um, and another one of our my favorite companies in the portfolio was uh, Hootsuite, which is a, a social media listening platform. Uh, Moving into the cannabis space. I, I saw the same thing taking place in cannabis as I have seen in tech in 2011, 2012 in Canada. Back in 2011, 2012, uh, if you were a Canadian tech company, you could get you could easily get some angel, high net worth individuals to put money into your company. But once you approach that Series A and Series B, there just weren't any real players in Canada that were willing to write that type of a check. So you had to go to take the ride to Silicon Valley, talk to the VCs there. Uh, the VCs there did not want to travel all the way to Canada, all the way to Toronto, take a five-hour flight to catch a two-, three-hour board meeting. So, for a lot of them, they would force these companies to move to the Valley if they wanted the money. Uh, then our, our, our fund was created Omer's ventures in, in which uh, our whole premise, and our whole thesis was, why don't we just let them stay in Canada? We all have families. Uh, why would they want to jump on a plane and move everything over to Silicon Valley? So we had some tremendous success there. Saw the same thing happening within cannabis. You have a bunch of high-network individuals on the cap tables writing checks between $100,000 to a $1 million. Uh, so you can quickly raise $5 million if you wanted to. Um, and then on the other side, you have uh, these larger hedge funds that are willing to play $20, $30, 50000000 million deals, but predicated on the fact that these companies go public. And for a lot of them, they go public too soon. Uh, and then they have to face uh, the wrath of the public market there wasn't any real patient capital in the industry. So when I first heard of this position, uh, and one of my good friends was the founders of Canopy Rivers, which I've known for 15 years, um, he, he he told me the story. He said, listen, we have this fantastic platform, which we're raising money for. Um, at the time, the company was not public, of course. Uh, and uh, we, we have Canopy Growth uh, that's helping backstop us. We're not a corporate VC, so we don't have to, always look at how each one of our investments uh, feeds into the larger company. Uh, we give that autonomy to our portfolio companies. But likewise, if they wanted to get that help, then we have a special type of deal structure that we can put into place that so they can get more help from the, the largest cannabis producer. And uh, just through talking to him, it just seemed like that, that perfect platform that you want to be part of very early in the game. Uh, in, in, a field with a strategy that just, we just don't have any competitors that are doing the same thing right now at the scale that we're doing.
0: Got it. Yeah. And aside from just being a great opportunity and, and a new awesome market, did you have an experience with cannabis or, you know, kind of what keeps you coming back to that industry, I suppose?
1: Yeah. I, mean, I guess I'm definitely one of those guys that does try to dog food. Uh, I've had experience in cannabis, uh, for, for quite some time, um, not, not so much anymore, uh, but, uh, but, but definitely understand what it is, uh, what it does, uh, and, and, uh, and the opportunity that, that's out there. Um, I, I have family members that are strong, strong believers and users of cannabis CBD uh, topicals for arthritis and muscle pain. Uh, and they, they call it the, the holy grail, um, and we've never seen anything help them as much as this plant has helped them. And just talking to them and talking to some of the other folks that around my, my life that have been impacted by things like cancer and, and they use cannabis as, as both a therapeutical and uh, some type of a medicinal value to it. Uh, there just seem like there's so much potential for this plant that just hasn't been uh, researched and hasn't been brought out just because of the, the, the way they have prohibited this, this drug over the last 95 years.
0: Got it. Yeah, no, makes sense. Um, so I have a note here that you guys see three to five hundred deals a quarter. Um, tell me a little bit about that process, the due diligence, deal flow. That's a large amount of deals to look at. Kind of take me through how that works a little bit.
1: Yeah. So each one of our business development uh, folks here, they see about six to seven pitches a day. Uh, so the bulk of their day is just sitting through pitches. The way I see it and the way we, we look at it is that there is a bit of a power play right now. We have these large institutional investors in the U.S. called the, the tech VCs that can't invest in this space because their investors are public companies uh, and, and they're kind of trip to exchange laws that, that are on the NASDAQ and the NYSE. Uh, so, so we do have a bit of a power play. That in combination with the halo effect of KP growth means that we can... Slice and dice the industry, say that, you know what, we want to get into the cosmetic side of things. What are the the top 20, 30 companies in the cosmetic space that are touching cannabis? Let's talk to every single one. Let's find out which ones are the ones that all all of them compare uh, themselves to. So what are the market leaders? Let's find a way to do the deal. And we can do this over and over and over again uh, because of the the process we have in place of seeing all these deals, recording uh, the data that we see on these deals, and being able to... You compare them internally to find out what are the um, the companies that we're seeing the most growth in, what are the operators that we're seeing the most traction from, who's done this before, Uh, and and really based our investment vision off of uh, more than just a cool brand name.
0: For sure. And then as you think about your team, you talked about the business analysts a little bit. Uh, Do you look for people that have more finance experience, more cannabis experience? Obviously, a blend is good, but how, how do you think about that?
1: I think that there's two types of individuals on the deal side that I really get attracted to. One is uh, VCs, folks that have venture capital experience. They understand not just how to do a deal, but how to work with a portfolio company. One of the stats I always like to use is the average uh, amount of time where a VC and an investee have to work with each other. And that number is around 10 years. I think it's 9.6 years when you look at the average marriage in North America, you're looking at about 11 years. So I always like to say that whenever you're getting money from a VC, you're basically getting married to them um, statistically, uh, and you're talking to them all the time. So when you hire someone from the VC world, they really understand how to uh, never ne- never criticize a company, um, always be uh, available to them, always uh, if you're, if you're going to say no, say no, give them a hard no instead of, Leading them on for four months. Uh, and, and those types of soft skills uh, really, really come in handy when you're going uh, 100 miles an hour within the cannabis space. The second type of people that I'm really uh, um, excited about are biotech uh, and pharma uh, VC. So we just hired a director of business development, uh, and she comes from the biotech VC world. Uh, she, she has a master's in nutrigenetics uh, and, and getting her PhD in IT and technology transfer. Which in the cannabis world, uh, patents and IP is becoming uh, of utmost importance. So uh, these two profiles really add a lot of bench strength to us in order to quickly look at deals uh, and compare them to one another and and make decisions fast.
0: Got it. And then you 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 have a tremendous amount of deal flow, and obviously you're doing your own research, reaching out to companies too. How do you think about co-investing and when other funds bring you deals, or do you prefer to sort of start Your own stuff from the beginning.
1: Yeah, so we we have three types of deal flow that that we capture. One is uh, inbound, so companies are contacting us through our website or through our general email. We have referrals, which are uh, friends of founders, and I always believe founders know the best founders, uh, as well as banks, lawyers, uh, other VC funds. And then we have our outbound strategy, which is let's create a thesis uh, of of where we think this industry is headed, uh, talk to all fifty companies within the space and make a decision of whether or not we want to invest and who are the top three companies in that space. Uh, from from the syndicate perspective, I'm always a believer that having more than one mind at the table really helps, uh, even if it decreases the economic uh, incentives for, for doing the deal. Uh, for example, if there's a uh, there's a company in uh, West Coast, so kind of the Seattle or uh, or California area. Um, We would love to have a partner there to to help us manage that investment. Uh, For for those that have experience in the VC industry, starting a startup is very, very hard. Uh, And anybody, whether they're serial entrepreneurs or first-time entrepreneurs, they're, they're not only seeing the growth of their industry, but they're seeing the ups and downs of having their own startup. You have key individuals that lead. You have competitive rivalry that's taking place. You have uh, deals that fall through, deals that take place. Or it is a bit of a roller coaster up and down. Uh, when you have a company that's next to you and close to you, it's really easy to take a, an entrepreneur out for coffee and talk them off of the ledge. Uh, but when you have an investment on the other side of the, the, the continent, uh, you really want to, to, to have a, a good partner within the syndicate who's available for that uh, investee uh, in real time. But likewise, um, managing it with you at board meetings and and larger, more macro calls.
0: Got it. Yeah. When you talk about sort of evaluating founders, it's a bit cliche that, you know, the people matter the most, but it still remains true. Are there sort of tests that you go through? I mean, how do you make that judgment call of of the right management teams?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, It's it's pretty simple. I mean, when when you look at the criteria, but it is hard to actually put into play. So there's three criteria that we look at, at any time we're looking at investment. One is how big is the market going to be? I mean, you don't want to invest in a super niche industry where the, the, the largest that the market can get is $100 million because now you're just adding a ceiling to uh, what the company can accomplish. So you're looking at a billion-dollar opportunities out there. Secondly, you're looking for product market space. So how, how are users using the product? How do they like it? Um, what, is, uh, what do they want to do with that? Are they talking about it on social um, are they discussing it in forums? Um, what kind of feedback are they getting? And then thirdly, you're looking at the entrepreneurs and the operators. And I think this is the most important criteria out of all three. You're looking for entrepreneurs that have done it before, that have had success before. They can bring that success into the business. Um, my favorite entrepreneurs are ones that have developed something for the non-cannabis uh, traditional industries and are applying that same thesis and same rigor to the cannabis space. Uh and, and the reason why I'm so I, I like the the repeat entrepreneurs so much is because uh they, they they know what the roller coaster looks like and they've seen the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh they they know how to build a business, they know the ups and downs, I and mean, they know how to weather the storm, which which you don't really you can't really uh mitigate that with a first time entrepreneur.
0: And you can't teach it. I mean how exactly. you, you can't they teach can. that, yeah. Absolutely. Got it. Well, that's really, really fascinating. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit more about the future. we We talked about brands a bit. that's uh, one of the hardest things that I find to do is how to pick brands. There are no real winners today yet. When you look at brands, um, what are sort of the criteria there or the things that you look for for you know fairly new brands?
1: yeah, so for for the brand side, there's there's three differentiating factors we looked at. One is talk differentiation. So, what are you doing that nobody else is doing? How is your product any different? So you take a company like, uh, for example, Candescent. Candescent's going after that, that high premium quality dry dry flour. There's other companies doing it, but they're just focused on that. They're not creating a mass market product. They're focused on that segment of the market. So how are they differentiating their brand? Secondly, you're, you're trying to understand what the distribution channels are. So how are they selling their product? Uh, you can't sell anything if you're not in-store or if you're not online. So are they doing it through direct consumer DCC Are they uh, a digitally native vertical brand? Are they selling it through a vape shop in Europe? Are they selling it through dispensaries uh, in, in the gray market in the US or in Canada? Um, how, how are they selling the product? And how many times can they actually get in front of the customer is really important as well. And the last piece we really look at is, is promotion. And promotion means both marketing and advertising in that sense uh, we, we call it uh, dark marketing uh, because it's, it's the ability to get the customer without actually showing up on TV and in, in radio and in the traditional media outlets. But it's enticing the customer and getting them to buy without actually showing up. So I think the, the alcohol and tobacco companies do a great job of this. And it's something that they're going to bring into business as they continue to take part. Um, and we're, we're seeing a lot of. Uh, social media influencers and, and, and large social media networks from, from a lot of these brands that, that are really pushing the envelope and, and getting to that market lead.
0: Got it. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit and sort of talk about you uh, as the person in connection with, with what you do. Um, you talked about how your relationship with cannabis has changed a little bit, um, but when you do like to consume, what what kind of things are, are you into?
1: Uh. When I do like to consume, um, I, I, I guess the, the, the number one product that I go for would be Bait Pen. Uh, I'm a big fan of controlling your your destiny uh, and knowing what, what you're getting and when you're getting it and how that's affecting you. So that micro dosing really helps. I've also in the past I really liked the, uh, the micro dosing of uh, candies and mints and, um, and, and gummies so you can actually control where, where you're going with that. But beyond that, the dry flowers always a, a good bet too, and I don't think that's ever going
0: to change. Yeah, I don't think uh, all the new products certainly will grow with new consumers, but I think the the flowers are not going anywhere. Um, okay, uh, you're so informed. Obviously, you have such a rich sort of overview of the industry. How do you stay informed? What do you read in the morning? What do you, what do you what's your go tos?
1: Yeah, so there, there's uh, I follow your your program, of course. Uh, oh, thank you. And there's a lot of other uh, other media that, that is out there as well. So I, I follow the, the Reddit boards. Um, I have a customized Flipboard app that, that that looks at Canvas only. Um, I always like to take deep dives within different things. So if I'm really looking at to how, uh, for example, one of the areas that, that I'm really focused on right now is the cosmetic space. I think cannabis cosmetics are really growing quickly. Uh, I will go on Google, search cannabis cosmetics, CBD cosmetics, uh, and will look at, quite frankly, 100 articles, print them all out, highlight the crap out of them, and come up with a thesis of where I think things are going based off all the different uh, um, media that that I've read. Uh, And that's really helped me zone in on an investment thesis really quickly. Uh, and on top of that, I, I guess the, uh, just, just going to these conferences and events really, really helps as well.
0: Got it. Um, let's talk about your mix of your day a little bit You're You're super busy, obviously, but how do you divide up the day? What does it look like?
1: So uh, I as well go through about six or seven pitches a day. Uh, so I'm constantly on the phone telling people about what we do, trying to understand what they do. So spending less time on talking about ourselves, spending the bulk of time talking to them. Seeing where, where they think things are headed, who are the competitors that they're most scared of, try to talk to those competitors as well to try to understand how that industry is playing out. The rest of my day is uh, just managing our own company, the day to day operations, uh, marketing our brand and, and our thought leadership and in creating thought leadership and showing the world that we're not just money, but we're, we're smart money. We can bring a lot of differentiation to uh, our, our investees and help them grow to become billion dollar businesses. Uh, and, and that is beyond a full day of work, uh, that's typically a 16 hour day for me.
0: Wow. And it must be stressful at some points. Uh, there's the inevitable ups and downs. How do you deal with that? A 16 hour day filled with all these different moving parts. Uh, you have strategies for, for dealing with that?
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, that that, that really helps as well. But, uh, for the most part, uh, I, I like to, uh, um, just, Uh, hang out with my wife and we have a a very young child at home. Uh, We have a two-month-old. Congratulations. uh, Thank you. Thank you. So so I I spend my time there trying to unplug as much as possible, but you know how this industry is. You're in it as well. Regulations can change any second. There's news that comes out after 4 p.m. every day. There's news that comes out before 8 a.m. every day. So you're trying to consistently make sure that you're informed and you know what's happening and that none of your investment uh, in your portfolio companies nor the companies you're looking at are underwater. Uh, And knowing exactly what's happening in all parts of the world, it really demands uh, a lot of work, but luckily, and I'm super grateful for the team that I have around me because um, no exaggeration here, I think we're all really huge rock stars uh, and we bring a lot of industry expertise to what what we bring to the table.
0: Awesome. So, last question, and I'll get you out of here. Is you've seen quite the growth in the cannabis industry? Um, is anything surprise you, or you know, how do you feel now that we're at this place and it's gotten so big?
1: I feel very tremendously optimistic. Uh, there are still players, bad actors out there that are forcing companies to go public too soon, forcing companies to uh, raise at very large valuations just to desert the stock after. Um, and then I think we're seeing less and less of that as time goes on. I saw the same thing within the tech industry uh, as I'm seeing within the cannabis industry now. Uh, there, There is a path towards cleaner term sheets, cleaner commercial for entrepreneurs, less uh, ratchets and provisions uh, to, to make things ugly. Um, and, and we're just making our way to that. Uh, down the road, I think as we get closer to legalization, which I think we'll, we'll see a, a, a huge jump uh, during the next elections, uh, federal elections in the U.S., which are... Next year, uh, we're going to see more and more traditional players come into the space uh, and legitimize this industry. Uh, cannabis has been illegal for 95 years. It's been broadly used before that for thousands upon thousands of years. Uh, when you use the product, you don't want to punch someone in the face or you can't OD on it. Uh, so, so there's just some, so much tremendous potential here uh, and then displacement with, with, from some other industries as well that's going to go into cannabis. And I'm super excited to be part of it. Uh, and different facets of that that exist
0: today. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Thank you so much, Narbe. It's been really nice having you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be to, uh, here today.